Thank you, Leslie. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Red Letter Challenge. What an exciting day. I'm excited to see what God will do as a result of uh, this series and this study that we take up in small groups. Uh, before we get to today's message, though, I would ask if you would bow your heads and pray with me as we begin this morning. Father in heaven, our God, our creator, the author and giver of life, we gather here in the name of your son, Jesus, in the beautiful, powerful name of Jesus. Father, it is our hope, it is our prayer this morning that you would mold us here in this time, that your word would shape us, that your word would soften our hearts, that it would impact our lives, and we would not be able to ignore what it is that you teach us. That that word that you imprint upon our minds and on our hearts would take root and produce fruit in this life. Father, I pray for all gathered here this morning, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be truly pleasing in your sight, our rock, our redeemer. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. How many of you have ever settled? When you've said, you know, I could do more, but I'm just going to settle for less. Maybe it was because you didn't think you deserved it. Maybe it was because you thought maybe it was too difficult. But for whatever reason, you decided settling was the thing to do. Well, maybe most of you know, well, some of you know, that I grew up in St. Louis. And just so you know, this is not going to be a baseball reference, although it would work here. It's just not going to be a baseball reference. But I actually grew up in a town west of St. Louis called Washington, Missouri. It was a small town of about 7,500 people when I moved there. And it seemed like on every corner there was a bar. So their bars were plentiful. When I say bar, I mean, you know, not like a bar like this, but a place that served alcoholic beverages, you know, that kind of bar. They were everywhere. Our town had two pizza places, Pizza Hut and Aldo's. It had three fast food restaurants, Dairy Queen, Burger King, and McDonald's. And it had a couple of diners, and then it had Wimpy's, which, by the way, you could still get the best hamburgers ever at Wimpy's. But the one thing that Washington did not have was a Mexican restaurant. If you wanted to have Mexican food, you had to go into St. Louis, and we would go to this place called Casa Gallardo's. It was started in the mid-70s by a man named Ramon Gallardo because he said there wasn't any good Mexican food in the city of St. Louis, and so he took it upon himself to open his own restaurant. And it was very successful. In fact, he was bought out in 1979 by the General Mills Corporation, and that grew to over 40 restaurants in several states. And it was great. I mean, I love their food. In fact, in 1985, after we got married, we moved out to West County, in St. Louis, and there was a Casa Gardos not too far from where we lived. And it was awesome, because we would go there for brunch, and they would have a great brunch, and we would eat there throughout the week. But then, in 94, we got transferred here to Chicago, and we moved into Lyle. And there's no Casa Gardos, but hey, there's a Chevy's up on Naper. And it was like, yeah, Chevy's, this is good. I can do this, right? It's fresh Mex. And then Chevy's closed, and we were like, what are we going to do for Mexican food? 
And it was, it was a sad time. It was like, why would Chevy's close? Chevy's is great. Why would Chevy's close? And somebody said, well, you know, you should try El Burrito Mexicano over here on Maple. And I'm like, that place? It's like, really? That little hole in the wall? You're telling me they've got really good Mexican food? He goes, yeah, it's like authentic. I'm like, okay. And so we go, and he says, be sure to order the burritos. So we ordered burritos, and they brought out these things about the size of a football with cheese melted over the top of them, and we took them home, and it was like amazing. It was like, these things are amazing. I've never had a burrito like this. And then I went back, and I had the tacos, the carne asada tacos, and they were even better. And I'm like, all these years, this place has been over here on Maple Avenue, and I've gone to Casa, I've gone to Chevy's. I've been settling for Chevy's, and the whole time, El Burrito Mexicano existed. You know, and as a Christian, I don't want to settle for Chevy's when there's El Burrito Mexicano. Do you know what I mean? As a Christian. Why settle for something less when Jesus has something way better for us, something more exciting for us, something bigger? Why would we settle for less when Jesus says, I have abundantly more for you than you could ever dream or imagine? Don't settle. But as Christians, we are notorious for settling for less. As followers of Jesus, as children of God, that's our history. Right? Go back to the Israelites who were just a river away from the promised land and they were afraid and didn't go across. Or how about the religious leaders of Jesus' day? The Messiah is there and they rejected him because that's not what they wanted. That's not who they expected. Or Jesus' disciples themselves, who constantly missed his point. Well, one day Jesus is walking with his disciples. And he's walking throughout the, the land, and he's healing people, and he's preaching, and people are amazed at his teaching. And one day he looks up at his disciples, and he raises their heads and looks up. Look at the people, he says. Look at them. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And he teaches them and instructs them so that they would then go and be workers in the harvest. That they would go and be his representatives in the harvest, telling people about Jesus and what he has done. He has invited you and I as followers of Jesus Christ to be his workers in the harvest, to tell the world about what Jesus Christ has done. But I have a question for you. How are we doing? I would say we're failing. Some would say miserably. And you might say, well, that's kind of harsh. Really? Several years ago, two authors, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, started this research project. For three years, they surveyed millions of young Americans, asking them, what do you think of Christianity today? What do you think of Christians? 
You want to guess at what they said about Christians? They said, we're loving, we're joyful, we're peaceful, patient, kind, good, and faithful. Do you believe that? Well, you shouldn't because it's not true. This is what they said about Christians. We're hypocritical, insincere, anti-gay, sheltered, too political, judgmental, old-fashioned, and boring. Now, I know what you're saying because I had the same reaction. Well, wait a minute. What about all the good that we do? They're not listening. They're not hearing about all the good that Christians do in the world today. I mean, look at the aid that Christianity provides in third world countries. Look at the resources we bring to bear in situations like Hurricane Irma and the natural disasters that happen in the United States. It's the Christian church that's on the scene, and it's there long after the governmental programs end. And Christians serving in our prison system and bringing the good news of God into the prison system. They're listening to too much of the media and the hype. But are they? See, what was also revealed in the study, that 50% of the young adults that were surveyed said their opinions of Christians didn't come from media or film. It came from their own personal interactions with Christians. They drew those conclusions based upon their interactions with us. That's what they're saying about us. They're saying that we are those things. We are judgmental. We are hypocritical. We are sheltered. We're anti-gay. If I ask you a question, I said, I want you to describe Jesus. Would these be the words that you used? No, they wouldn't be the words that we use to describe Jesus, but yet those are the words that people associate with Jesus. That's why the authors of the book tell us that many of those outside the church, outside of Christianity, reject Jesus because they feel rejected by us. Paul said in Romans 2.5, he says, people will blaspheme the name of God because of you, because you say do this, but yet you do the opposite. And people will mock God because of you, because of your actions. And that's exactly what they're finding. It's because of the way we treat non-Christians, the way we treat each other. We're giving the wrong picture of who Jesus is. So my question is, how did it get like this? How did we get to this point? Well, in 2004, there was a man named Matthew Emmons. And at the time, he was the best sharpshooter in the entire world, hands down. He competed in, in Olympic Games, world competitions, and he was by far the best. In fact, in 2004, at the Olympics, the question wasn't who was going to win gold. The question that year was who could come in second because it was a foregone conclusion that he would win the gold medal. And it got to the final round in that Olympic competition, and he was so far ahead that in his final round, all he need do was hit the target. Now, for those of you that grew up in Chicago, that would probably be a challenge. For some of us who grew up in Missouri, not so much, but certainly not for him. It would not be a difficult thing to do. What do you think happened? He lines up the target, bullseye, dead center. One small problem, it was the wrong target. 
it was the target in the next lane over. It's called a crossfire. And as a result, zero points. No medal. And that was his reaction. And afterwards, in the press conference, he was asked, what happened? And he says, well, I crossfired. I said, I, I can't explain it. He said, I haven't done that in six or seven years. Maybe we're focused on the wrong target. Maybe we're taking dead aim at the wrong thing. Maybe we're so focused on ourselves, on what we think, that we're missing the target. We're missing it all together. Maybe we're just focusing on the wrong target. So what is the target? What is it that we should be shooting at? If what we've been shooting at is producing opinions of judgmental and hypocrite and racist, if that's what we're hitting, maybe we need to do the opposite and do what Jesus said to do. Maybe we need to follow his lead. Maybe we need to take after him and aim at what Jesus teaches us to do. In order to do that, we need to understand Jesus' words. Another day, Jesus was walking through the countryside, as Matthew tells us, and he was walking through in great crowds. They just kept swelling, and they were coming from everywhere were following him. And Matthew records this time in, as what we call the Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And Jesus is teaching the crowds, and they're amazed at how powerful his message is, at the authority with which he speaks. And his message is countercultural and certainly counter-religion of the day, as evidenced by the religious leaders seeking to kill him because of what he was saying, because he was teaching against their interpretation of the, of the law. But yet the people were amazed at his teaching, and his teaching was challenging. But I think the thing that's probably the most challenging, it has been for me, is the thing that messes me up more than anything, are these verses at the end of that sermon that you heard read just a few moments ago, where Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. For the rain came down, and the streams rose, and the winds blew against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation upon the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. For the rains came down, and the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus contrasts two people here. Both hear his words. One is foolish, one is wise. The wise man puts Jesus' words into practice. He not only hears his words, he actually does what Jesus says. It's the foolish man who hears Jesus' words and settles for less. It's not just hearing Jesus' words. It's not just studying them memorizing them, being able to teach them to others, hold others accountable to obeying them while you yourself ignore them, while you yourself find them difficult, while you yourself find them difficult and walk away 
but you know them, and you can recite them, and you can teach them to others, but you find them hardened, you find them challenging, and so you decide not to do them. Jesus says, that is the fool. It would be wise to put my words into practice, not just hear the words, but to actually do the words. That's the target. The target is actually doing what Jesus teaches us to do. That is why we take up this challenge. Jesus says that not only would it be wise for you to do, it would be best in your best interest to do. He said, I came so that you could have life and have it abundantly, or some translations say to the full. What's the abundant life Jesus is speaking of? It's his life. It's doing the things that Jesus did, not just said, but did. Jesus said you would be wise, and it would not only be wise, it would be to your benefit to put my words into practice. That is the abundant life. That is the life that I've found most joyful. He tells his disciples the night that he was betrayed that they were going to kill him, that they were going to do all these horrible things to them. He said, but there is joy in doing the will of the Father, and I want you, my disciples, my representatives, to have my joy within you. And he says, in order to do that, you actually have to do what I tell you to do. You have to live the way I tell you to live. It is for your benefit. In this verse, in John 10.10, it begins not this way, but it begins with a warning. It says, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come so that you may have life and have it in abundance. The thief comes to convince you that building your house on the sand is a wise thing. You're closer to the beach. It's more comfortable. It's less challenging. He convinces us that that is really the wise thing to do. But Jesus says, no, he's really come to steal, kill, and destroy. So that when the rains come, when the storms come, you will find yourself upside down, grasping and blaming God for your circumstances. Jesus says, no. When the rains come, and they will come, when the storms come, and they will come, when your house is built upon the foundation of the rock of Jesus Christ, you will find that it will stand because you've built your house on him, because you've built your life on Jesus, doing the things Jesus taught you to do. Don't just put them into your mind. Put them into practice. Actually do them. Stop using the excuses that it's not my gift, that I try, but I just can't do it. I know, I, I know the good I ought to do, but that's not the stuff I do. Jesus says, no, you know the good that you should do, and you can do it because I am living in you, because what I have done for you, you can do this. With my help, you can do this. Jesus says it's simple. The abundant life is doing what I have taught you to do. But let's not, let's not confuse simple with easy. G.K. Chesterton said, the Christianity, the ideal Christianity has not been found tried, has not been tried and found wanting. He said it's been found difficult and left untried. This challenge that we're undertaking will be a challenge. It will be difficult. 
There will be things in this challenge that we will find easy. There will be things in this challenge that you're like, I'm doing this already. But I'm telling you, there will be days and you will say, yeah, I don't know about that one. Let's just skip that one. Let's move on to the next day and we'll see what holds the next day. And so we want to go through this together as a church, together as God's people. For the next five weeks, we're going to focus on these five words in Jesus' teachings. The first one is being. Next week, we're going to talk about what it means to be with Jesus. Before we do anything, we need to just be with him in his word and experience him, understand what it is he teaches before we start doing anything. So this next week will be about being. The week following, we will study and understand what it means to be forgiven, how we have been already forgiven, to experience the forgiveness of Jesus, because it's when we experience the forgiveness of Jesus and understand it truly that we can then offer it to others, which we will be encouraged to do. And in week three, we're going to look at serving. When we understand our forgiveness, when we understand what God has done for us, how he has served us, our response is to serve our neighbor, to love our neighbor. And so we're going to focus on that in week three. And then in week four, we're going to focus on money, on giving. Next to the kingdom of God, Jesus spoke about money more than anything else. And so to teach what Jesus taught, we're going to teach about giving and giving financially. And the final week, we'll talk about going. Every one of the Gospels ends with that command to go. Jesus, when he's taken back up into heaven, in Acts we read, he sends his disciples, sends them to go. He's going to send us to go in this challenge. And he does every day to go and tell the good news about Jesus. We're going to spend those five weeks in learning the words of Jesus, learning to put them into practice, but we're going to do that together. So we're going to need to do a couple of things. Any challenge you undertake, we need to understand what we need to bring. And the first thing we need to do is we need to invite Jesus into this challenge. We don't go in our own strength. We don't just go in our own power. We invite him in. I would ask that you pray as you begin every day that that would be a practice that you would begin in this challenge that carries through the rest of your life. You would begin that day praying that you invite Jesus into your day. We're going to invite Jesus into this challenge because we need him if we're going to complete it. He tells us in John 15, 5, that I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So we want to invite Jesus into this challenge. The second thing we need to do is we need to invite others into this challenge with us. We have over 17 groups that are meeting during this challenge. If you're not in a small group, there are groups that are open that you could join. As I said earlier, this will be a challenge, and you will need assistance. You will need the church. That is why the church exists, to encourage one another, to help one another do those difficult things that we could not do on our own. Some of you know that last year, I ran the Chicago Marathon for the very first time. And if it weren't for these people encouraging me all the way, running with me all the way, it would have been very easy and very tempting to just quit. Because it's hard. It's something that I always said I wanted to do. 
until you start doing it. And then you start questioning why in the world you ever signed up for something like this. And if it weren't for these people helping me and encouraging me, I would have never done it. But here's the thing that most of you don't know is that at the same time last year as I started training for this marathon, I started experiencing some challenges in my health. I was undergoing testing and they were starting to discover maybe I had an extra heartbeat here and there. And so they started, they sent me to a cardiologist and as I began to train. And he started doing some tests and said, yeah, that doesn't seem right, we're going to do another test. And yeah, that doesn't seem right, we're going to do another test. And yeah, that doesn't seem right, we're going to do another test. And the whole time I'm running and I'm getting stronger and it doesn't make sense. And he says, I don't think there's anything, but you know, I said, so keep on running. And so I kept running. And it was the Tuesday after I finished a 10-mile run on Saturday, I go into the doctor's office and he says, yeah, you need to stop running. We think you have a blockage in one of your coronary arteries. Okay, and we want to do an angiogram. And so the following Tuesday, they did an angiogram, and sure enough, they found that one of my left coronary arteries had a 70% blockage. And so they put in a stent. And two weeks later, after passing a stress test, he's like, you can start running again. And I did. Under the watchful eye of my cardiologist and my wife, who started riding her bike behind me. And when she couldn't go, she made sure John Heglin was running with me. I'm sure of that. But here's the thing. Had I not been doing that training, had I not been running up to that point, had I not been in that shape, and he comes to me and says, you've got a blockage in one of your coronary arteries, it would have just messed me up. It would have turned my world upside down because I would have ended up in cardiac rehab not being able to run but to walk. And the whole time sitting there looking at myself going, how would you let yourself get into this kind of shape? Why would you have done this to yourself? You know better. But as a result of the training, as a result of these people helping me and cheering me along, that was not the reaction that I had. I was thankful that I was healthy enough to continue to run and that God had not seen it fit to take my life at that point, but I could continue to run. See, you don't know what's coming. You don't want know what's happening tomorrow that maybe God is trying to prepare you for today. That he's asking you to do some difficult things today, but he's not asking you to do it alone. He's got a church here. He's got a group of people that want to encourage you, that want to come alongside of you and help you. Because we're two or three are gathered together in his name, he's with us. We invite Jesus into this challenge, but we invite others into the challenge to do the things that we say we need to do, but we won't do by ourselves. We need the church. Jesus knows that. That's why we're here. That's why we're taking the red letter challenge, not just on the weekends, but in small groups. That's why we're doing it together. We're doing it for the hope that the world would get a truer, clearer picture of who Jesus is through you, through your life, as you focus on the right thing, as you focus on the words of Jesus and put them into practice. Can you imagine what your life, what this community, what this world would be like if we together 
could head down that road and keep heading down that road the rest of our lives? Encouraging one another, picking one another up when we fall down? We're never going to do it perfectly, but we're going to do it together. And Jesus says he's going to do it with us, and he will produce the fruit. He just asks us to follow. And so that's what we want to do for these weeks. We want to follow him. And I just ask you this morning, are you with us? Will you take up the challenge? Will you take up the red letter challenge and see what God might do through his word? I pray you do for his sake. Amen.